You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Useless information. Hi, I'm Steve Silverman, and you're listening to a classic episode of the Useless Information Podcast. The story you're about to hear was released on June 15th of 2008. In it, I told the sinking of the USS Indianapolis in 1945, in which 879 men died. Now, if you already know the story, consider yourself among the few who do, but more likely you've never heard it, so I strongly encourage you to listen to it. Now, I just listened to that story for the first time in many, many years, and I noticed that at the end of the recording, I said something like, I hope you enjoyed the story. That was definitely a poor choice of words for such an incredible loss of life. Anyway, cue the sound. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is on the USS Indianapolis, which is considered by many to be the worst naval disaster ever in U.S. history. But before we get to that story, let's start with our question of the day, which is about the great legendary singer Johnny Mathis. Now, most of the hits that Johnny Mathis had were actually before I was born, but he does hold one record, and that is he had the first greatest hits album ever. Now, today we see them everywhere, but back then it was quite a new thing. He had the first greatest hits album ever, and it happened to have spent 490 weeks, that's over nine years, on Billboard's charts. But just prior to becoming a recording artist, Johnny was actually pursuing something else. He could have gone one way or the other. And my question to you is, what was he in training for at the time that he became successful and chose the music career. Now you probably have no clue, so I'll give you six choices to choose from. One, was he an architect's apprentice? Was he in training to become an architect? Was he two, in training to be an opera singer instead of a pop singer? Or was he three, training to become an Olympic track athlete? Or four, was he in training to become one of our first astronauts? Or five, was he training to become a chef? And finally, could he have possibly been in training to become a policeman? So the question is, just prior to Johnny Mathis getting his recording contract, he was in training to do something else. Was it one, an architect's apprentice, two, as an opera singer, three, as an Olympic track athlete, four, as an astronaut, five, as a chef, or six, as a policeman? And of course, I will leave you in suspense until the end of this podcast with the correct answer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now for today's story on the USS Indianapolis, which is actually one that I had never intended on putting on this podcast. But I was sitting at lunch a couple of weeks ago with some of my uh, fellow colleagues, and 
the subject of the Indianapolis came up and only myself and one other teacher seemed to know about it. All the other teachers seemed to be clueless about this great disaster in history. So I thought maybe there are other people out there who don't know the story either, and I thought I would share it with you. So here we go. I guess we should start with the where and when, the time and place that the story actually takes place. And the story goes back to uh, July 26, 1945, when the USS Indianapolis, which is a fairly large, heavy cruiser for the U.S. Navy, had delivered critical parts for the first atomic bomb. It was delivering it to Tinian Island, which you probably have no clue where it is, but it's in the northern Marianas Islands, uh, which are probably, I don't know, roughly 800 to 1,000 miles east of the Philippines. The real story, however, takes place on July 30th, just a few days later at 14 minutes after midnight, when the USS Indianapolis was struck by a Japanese submarine and sunk. In fact, it was the last U.S. Navy ship to be sunk by enemy action in World War II. There was another sub that was sunk after this, but this is the last major ship that was sunk. Now, it doesn't take much of a whiz to figure out that if this is a top-secret mission, if you're delivering parts for the first atomic bomb ever to be built, not too many people are going to know about your mission. And in fact, that was part of the problem with this sinking of the ship, because no notice was sent to the port of destination that the ship was going to arrive. And since no one knew the ship was going to arrive, they didn't know it was missing. And this ship sank very, very quickly. In fact, it went down in just under 12 minutes after being hit by the torpedoes from the Japanese submarine. Uh, it lost all electrical power, but it did have enough time to send out an SOS. But these messages, for various reasons, were either ignored or just not received. And as a result, no one knew that this ship had gone down. Exact numbers are hard to come by, but they estimate that about 300 of the 1,196 men that were on board the ship actually died instantaneously or went down with the ship and died. The remainder, about 880 men, were thrown into the water with their life jackets, uh, and maybe not even that, but they were thrown into the water with no lifeboats at all. And there they stayed. Again, you have to keep in mind that no one knew that the ship was missing. It was actually scheduled to arrive in port on the 31st of July, but since it was top secret, no one noticed that it wasn't there. It wasn't until August 2nd at 10.25 in the morning that a routine patrol flight actually noticed there were people down in the water. And of course, they uh, dropped down a life raft and radioed a little bit that they had on the plane uh, to help people out and then radioed back to headquarters that there were people down in the water. Almost immediately, the first ship uh, changed course and went to rescue these people that are out in the ocean. Of course, it's a very, very dangerous thing to do. Just think about it. You're in the middle of a world war, and there are Japanese submarines everywhere. And they had to turn on the searchlights at night to actually find people floating around in the water. And they had to search a really, really large portion of the Pacific Ocean. You've got to remember, the currents are going to take people away from the actual location that the ship sank. And in fact, uh, it took them until August 8th, that's six days, to comb a radius of about 100 miles around the ship. In the end, they were only able to save 317 of the 1,196 men that were on the ship. Now, if you go by the estimate of about 880 men initially being thrown into the water, that means that 563 men were killed while waiting to be rescued by the U.S. Navy. It was later determined that the men died from the obvious, you know, lack of food, lack of water, exposure to the cold at night, uh, you know, salt poisoning, thirst. But the one thing you wouldn't think about is that many of them died from shark attacks. In fact, the Discovery Channel has actually stated on a program on the Indianapolis 
that more people die from shark attacks in the USS Indianapolis disaster than any other time in history. Although the question is whether or not they, the men were actually attacked by the sharks and eaten, or did they die and then were they you know, then carried off by the sharks. So which one caused which is a little uncertain. Now you would think a disaster of this proportion where 879 men have perished would make the front page of the paper the next day. I mean, today CNN and all those other stations would be on it within one minute, but that wasn't the case. In fact, the U.S. government kept it a secret for about two weeks until August 15th so that they could actually let the world know about it after the Japanese surrendered. That way, it would be kind of overshadowed. So there would be all this celebration about winning the war that people wouldn't notice that this great disaster had actually occurred. And as is typical in just about every disaster that occurs, someone had to take the blame for this. And they blamed the captain of the ship, a guy named Charles McVeigh III. He had been commanding the ship since uh, November of 1944, survived the sinking, and of course was rescued along with all the other men that had survived. In November of 1945, he was court-martialed and convicted of hazarding his ship by failing to zigzag. Basically, he went straight and he should have zigzagged his ship. But it didn't take long before uh, further information came out. and It was determined that really he couldn't have done anything, and he was returned to active duty before he retired in 1949. It wasn't until the 1990s that classified documents were released, and it was found out that they had denied his uh, request for destroyer escort, and uh, his ship was the only major ship of the entire war that lacked anti-submarine detection uh, during its travels. On top of that, about 700 ships were lost by the U.S. Navy during World War II, yet McVeigh was the only one ever to be court-martialed for the loss of the ship. Based on this lack of evidence and all this uh, newly released classified information, in October of 2000, President Clinton actually exonerated uh, McVeigh and cleared his record. And that concludes the very, very sad story of the USS Indianapolis, which holds the record for the worst single at-sea loss of life of any ship in the U.S. Navy. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now for today's retro sponsor. Experienced seamen know better than anyone else that there is no substitute for experience at sea. And they know that in wartime, the merchant marine needs thousands of extra men to man the new Liberty ships. This is an emergency. The merchant marine is desperately in need of experienced men, especially licensed engineers and deck officers. If our merchant marine is to continue the fine job it has been doing, there must be thousands more experienced men to sail the ships. Apprentice seamen are doing their best, but they can't do the job alone. They must have your sea experience to lead the way. 
Now, if you're a licensed officer or have your certificate as an A.B. or fireman, oiler or water tender, sign on today. This is a job which you and you alone can fill. You and you alone know how to do it. Wire collect to Merchant Marine, Washington, D.C. Give your rating and address. Go back to sea and help get those supplies to our fighting men. Since today's story was from World War II, I thought that this 1945 Merchant Marine commercial was very appropriate. It's a commercial that would have been playing right about the time that the Indianapolis sank. And now what I like to call news of the weird past. These are true little tidbits that made the papers many, many, many years ago. Let's start with this little story from March of 1925. It seems that in Atlantic City, there was a meeting of the American Brush Manufacturers Association to discuss the toothbrush trade. Well, it seems at that time there were 113 million people in the U.S., but only 40 million toothbrushes were purchased annually. They concluded that 330 million toothbrushes should be purchased every single year if people wanted to keep their molars from becoming unyellowed. It seems that they calculated out that the life of a toothbrush should be no more than three months. And I really like this little tidbit. Stated that President William Cortez, and this is in quotes, we hear of many instances where the same toothbrush is used from 10 to 15 years, unquote. Ugh. And here's one from October of 1926, which took place outside of Bloomfield, New Jersey, where a guy named Walter Johnson was driving his car next to a guy named Sidney Smith, who was on a motorcycle. As they went around a turn, the car, of course, cut the corner a little bit too close and forced Smith and his motorcycle off the road. Mr. Johnson, of course, stopped, got out of the car, and apologized uh, greatly. Mr. Smith, then enraged, turned and punched Walter Johnson, fracturing his skull and killing him. And the last one for today takes place in Los Angeles in November of 1937, where it's reported that the State Bureau of Furniture and Bedding Inspection, I guess this is in the days before those little tags that are put on your mattress and on your uh, pillows. Anyway, they were summoned by a man who suffered from insomnia. He was complaining about his newly restuffed mattress, something they don't do today. Anyway, the inspectors ripped open the mattress, and what they found is that it had been restuffed with a five-pound slab of concrete four, and four old suits of underwear. Maybe not the best, most comfortable way to sleep. And now the answer to today's question of the day, which had to do with the great singer Johnny Mathis. And I asked just prior to getting his recording contract, what was he in training to be? And I gave you six options. I said, one, an architect's apprentice, two, an opera singer, three, an Olympic track athlete, four, an astronaut, five, a chef, or six, a policeman. Well, it turns out he was in training to be an Olympic track athlete. It seems that in 1955, he actually had a record-setting jump of six foot five and a half inches at San Francisco State and was invited to try out for the 1956 Olympics. I hope you enjoyed today's story on the USS Indianapolis, which is a really disastrous story, as well as the question of the day, the retro sponsor, and my little tidbits that I call the news of the weird past. If you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller, online retails, and, of course, through your local library. If for some reason you'd like to contact me, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. You can also uh, you know, check out my website, which is uselessinformation.org. That's uselessinformation.org. And as always, I'd appreciate it if you'd log into iTunes and leave some positive comments to help increase the number of listeners to this podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye.